It is an unargued historical fact that for a variety of different reasons, preaching had fallen on hard times during the late medieval church. Uh, many worship services at that time did not feature much preaching at all. And those that did were often characterized by sermons that were brief and were heavy on anecdotes about saints and miracles and included very little direct application and explanation of the scriptures themselves. The kind of preaching, expository, sequential, scripture-based that we practiced in our church, that we practice rather, in our church today was essentially unknown at that time in the late medieval church among the common people of Christendom. It is important that you know this, that you realize this, that you have some appreciation for the gift that preaching is. At the heart of the Protestant Reformation then was a restoration of the centrality of preaching for the worship of the church. Reformers, of course, did not invent this way of preaching. It was present in the early days of the church. It was right there in the examples of Christostom, of Ambrose, of Augustine, and many, many others. But it had been largely lost by the time of the early 15th century when it was restored by Calvin, by Luther, by Zwingli, by Knox, and by many others whose names are now unknown to us. The kind of preaching that the reformers practiced was simple. It was not complicated. They would take a book of the Bible and start at the beginning and preach consecutively through it until they got to the end. That was the plan. Explaining, as they went, the straightforward meaning of each passage. It was not flashy. It was not complicated. They did not try to address all the pressing concerns of the day and relevant sermon series that they would create. No, they simply taught the Bible Sunday after Sunday and trusted that this in itself would bear fruit in the lives of their people. John Calvin, in fact, in his time at Geneva, preached through almost every book of the Bible. His sermons, many of them, are recorded for us. And he did not preach short sermon series either. He preached, for example, 353 sermons on the book of Isaiah alone over a span of four years. However, he did have this advantage. He preached as many as six or seven sermons a week. He preached almost every weekday and twice, of course, on Sunday. I bring this up, beloved, because it's important for you to know that the manner in which we preach here in our church today is rooted in the tradition of the church. It's not arbitrary. It's not something we invented. It's rooted in the tradition of the church, both in the preaching that took place during the patristic period and the church fathers, and also in the example of the Protestant Reformation tradition that began about 500 years ago. We preach the way that we do, and I know that it's different than other ways of preaching that exist today, because we believe that what God's people need in the preaching of the word is not entertaining stories or anecdotes or stirring rhetorical speeches or, or pseudo-TED Talks. Now, we believe that what God's people need more than anything else is the simple, consecutive explanation and application of the very word 
of God. We preach this way because we believe, as our larger catechism states, that the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially, especially, the catechism says, the preaching of the Word, to be an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. We preach in this way, to put it simply, because we believe it is the way that God saves sinners from death and gives them salvation. Therefore, in the spirit of the Reformation, we will honor Reformation Sunday by simply preaching the next text in Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This passage is printed on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to examine it there. I invite you now to listen carefully to God's holy and inerrant word. Paul writes, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus far the reading of God's Word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father and heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now by your Spirit to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest this portion of your Holy Word, that we might more and more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What is God like? What is God's character? What is his nature? Who is God really? What is God like? How we answer this question is perhaps the most important factor of our spiritual lives, because who God is in his nature, in his character, in his person, will determine how we relate to him, how we pray to him, how we believe in him, how we obey him, how we trust him. 
Who is God? What is God like? The scriptures have an answer to this question about God's character and nature. And John 1, 18, the apostle tells us, no one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Beloved, an immense amount of Christian theology is packed into that one sentence. What John is saying here is that God is not hidden. God is not unknown. No, you can know exactly what God is really like. You can know exactly who God really is. And the way that you know these things, the way you know God's character and his nature, is through the revelation of himself that he has given you in his Son. Jesus Christ, the only God, the one who is at the Father's side, the one who has made the Father known. What this means, so to speak, is that there is no hidden God behind the back of Jesus Christ. No, in Jesus, God has made himself fully and perfectly known. There is no aspect of God's character or nature that is not revealed in the person of his son, because he is, as the apostles, apostle to Hebrews writes, the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And so Jesus fully reveals the nature and character of God. And so if you want to know what God is like, don't go, I tell you, to the speculations of the philosophers down through the centuries. They have theories, but don't go there. Don't rely either on your own intuition, your own sense of God and who he is based on your experience. No, rather turn to the pages of the scriptures and particularly the pages of the Gospels. For there, in Jesus, God's true nature is revealed to you perfectly and completely. And how does Jesus do this? How does our Lord Christ reveal the true nature of God? Matthew 16, our gospel reading this morning, gives us a significant clue. In this passage, when Jesus asks the disciples, this is just before the passage we read, he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a remarkable moment. Jesus commends Peter for his answer. He promises the church that he will build will overcome the gates of hell. But then Jesus, after Peter's confession, immediately begins to tell the disciples about what it means that he is the Christ, the Son of God. As Matthew tells us, Jesus says to his disciples that this means that he must, he says, not I desire or I might, but I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That is how Jesus understood his identity as God's Son. When Peter hears this, he is deeply offended, even angry. He rebukes Jesus. He tells him, these things must never happen to you, Jesus. And in response, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Now, the wording of that last part of Jesus' response to Peter is significant. His point is that Peter is thinking about things from a human perspective, from a, a man's perspective. He is setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. He is acting like a creature, not the creator. From Peter's limited perspective, it is madness. It is offensive even. It is unthinkable that the Christ, the Son of the living God, to be that person would mean embracing suffering, rejection, and death. That is simply not who God is from the perspective of a created man. But Jesus knows that Peter is wrong. It's not really his fault. He's just limited. He just can't get it on his own. Jesus knows actually the opposite is true. It is precisely because he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be rejected and killed. Because it is in doing these things he will reveal the true nature of the living God. Somehow mysteriously in the wisdom of God, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians. Paul, I'm sorry, God's true nature is revealed in this way, by God giving himself in suffering, by dying for those who have rejected his love. And then in the next verse in Matthew, Jesus reveals the nature of his death. He will not just die in Jerusalem, he must die in a particular way. And so he says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And for the first time in the Gospels, the cross is mentioned in the context of Jesus' own understanding of his death. The death that the Son of God chooses to reveal the true nature of the living God is the death that comes by crucifixion. This is how he will make the hidden God fully known, by being crucified. The teaching of Jesus regarding his self-understanding of his vocation and mission as the divine Son of God, the one who makes God known, is what forms the background of Paul's teaching in our passage this morning. Paul writes in verses 5 to 7, he says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." You see, Paul writes here that though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Paul here is affirming that the eternally existent Son is co-equal with the Father in substance, power, and glory. But he is saying that the Son did not consider his divine status, his eternal glory with the Father, as something to be grasped, as something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, Christ Jesus reveals the true, loving, self-giving nature of God by emptying himself, by taking the form of a servant, or more literally, the form of a doulos, a slave, 
being born in the likeness of men. Now, what does it mean here when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself? We have to be careful here because if we don't interpret this text rightly, we could end up in some bad places, theologically speaking. Paul does not mean here that when Jesus became man, he emptied himself of his divine nature or his divine attributes, that he somehow relinquished any aspect of his divinity. To put it bluntly, Jesus did not in any sense stop being fully God when he became man. I want you to hear that and make sure I'm saying that in a way that makes sense. Jesus did not give up any aspect of his divinity when he was made man. No, as Paul puts it in Colossians 1, in Christ... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Son of God, when he became man, united his true and full divine nature to his true and full human nature. Two true, full natures, divine and human, bound up, united together in one person. Rather, what Paul means here when he says that Jesus emptied himself in his incarnation is that Jesus poured himself out. And it was his divine nature that caused him to do this. As the Nicene Creed puts it, he is the one who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He pours himself out in his incarnation. He takes the form of a slave for our sake, for us and our salvation. Now, make no mistake, beloved. What Paul is saying here is that the incarnation of the Son of God, the taking on of human flesh, was entirely appropriate for him. It was absolutely fitting for him to embrace these things because this is who God is. This is what God's nature is like. It is to empty himself, to give himself, to take on the form of a slave. Because our God is the one who does this, who pours himself out, who gives himself in love for his beloved creation. But in verse 8, Paul notes that Christ Jesus, the eternally existent Son of God, did not only pour himself out by being born in the likeness of man, he also pours himself out in the specific nature of his human life and death. Paul writes, and being found in human form, this Christ Jesus, this eternally existent Son of God, he humbled himself, and how? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, this is how Jesus truly, truly reveals God's real nature. He humbles himself and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice what Paul's doing there. He's saying Jesus humbled himself not just by dying, but by being crucified. That was the, the goal, the end of his revelation of God's nature. And that raises an important question. Why? Why is it that it was God's will and Jesus' clear intention to die specifically by means of 
crucifixion? It's a fascinating question, I think, theologically, when you think about it. Jesus, theoretically, could have atoned for our sins by dying in some other means than crucifixion. He could have been beheaded, perhaps, like the Apostle Paul. He could have been stabbed to death uh, by a mob of his enemies, like Julius Caesar. But with some amount of specific deliberation, like a lot of intention went in to Jesus' death, if you read the Gospels, on his part, I mean. Jesus intentionally chooses to be crucified, that that would be the way, the specific way that he would die. His crucifixion is not an accident. Jesus was not in the wrong place at the wrong time at the end of the Gospels. No, his death by means of crucifixion was his specific intention and plan and the plan of God. In fact, you could argue that one of the reasons that Jesus became man at the particular time in human history that he did was because it was during the time of the Roman Empire, and specifically Roman Empire ruling in Israel. And the Roman Empire, of course, practiced public crucifixion in a unique way relative to other civilizations of the world, among the worst of its criminals and rebels. And it is in his death on the cross that Paul highlights here. That is the culmination, that is the fulfillment, the, the, the ultimate end of Jesus' emptying himself, of his taking the form of a slave, of his humbling himself. All these things, Paul says, result in this, that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I suspect that at least one answer to this question, why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die this way? It's simply this. There was no more fitting way for God the Son to reveal the nature of who God is than by pouring himself out in humility, by being crucified. I submit that no other form of death that humans have invented would have been so fitting, so appropriate, so right to reveal God's true nature. For it is the very nature of God to pour himself out, to humble himself, to give himself for those whom he loves. And in the history of the human race, crucifixion, historians will tell you this, is a particularly humiliating and terrible way to die. It is unique in many ways. Under the Roman Empire's rule, crucifixion was not used for anyone. No, not at all. It was for the dregs of society, the lowest of the low. It was reserved for slaves, for rebels against the state, and for the worst of criminals. No Roman citizen, no matter their crime or betrayal, could be crucified. It was too terrible, it was too humiliating to even consider such a thing happening to someone who was a citizen of Rome. You see, one of the main points of crucifixion from Rome's perspective was its public nature. As Fleming Rutledge puts it, she writes, debasement resulting from public display was a chief feature of the method of crucifixion, that is along with the prolonging of agony. 
Crucifixion, she says, was a form of advertisement, of public announcement. This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live more an insect than being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure, so as many people as possible could watch as the person died. Rutledge goes on to write um, some of the details about some of the details of why crucifixion was such a uniquely terrible way in terms of the pain. She writes, passive exhalation, which is breathing out, which we all do thousands of times a day without thinking about it. We're doing it right now, all of us. Becomes impossible for a person hanging on a cross. The weight of a body hanging by its wrists would depress the muscles required for breathing out. Your lungs wouldn't work. Therefore, each exhaled breath could only be achieved by a tremendous effort. The only way to gain a breath at all would be by pushing oneself up legs and feet or pulling oneself up by the arms, either of which would cause intense agony. And she goes on and says, add to this primary factor of torturous pain the following secondary ones. Bodily functions uncontrolled, Insects feasting on wounds and orifices, unspeakable thirst, muscle cramps, bolts of pain from the severed median nerves in the wrists where the nails had gone, scourged back, scraping against the wooden cross. It is more than any of us, she writes, are capable of fully imagining. The verbal abuse and other actions such as spitting and throwing refuse by the spectators, Roman soldiers, and passers-by added the final touch. That's what crucifixion was like in the first century. And what I want you to see, beloved, is that Jesus chose that, that he desired it. He intentionally humbled himself and emptied himself in this way, taking the form of a slave and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did that on purpose because it was in this way, not just by dying, but by dying on a cross that he would most fully reveal the true nature of God that God is loving, that God is gracious, that God is one who gives himself. And this means, friends, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to understand the true nature of the divine being, you must not go to the philosophers in their venerated halls. If you want to know what God is like, you must not. You must not. And I know this is tempting to do, but you must not. Put your trust in your own subjective experience and intuition of who God is. In fact, if you want to know what God is like, you must not even go out into nature and look for some glorious sunset or beautiful landscape to discover the truth 
of His divine nature, not fully. No, beloved, if you want to know what God is really like, who God really is, you must do this. You must travel to a hill called Calvary, outside the gates of Jerusalem, and there cast your eyes on a wretch of a man, dying on a cross, gasping for breath, bleeding from his wounds, mocked by his enemies, deserted by his friends. There, this crucified man dying slowly on a cross, he is not what you would expect God to look like. He looks like a criminal, like a slave. But it is in this way that the words of the prophet are fulfilled, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, as he dies, he is indeed despised and rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And yet, beloved, I tell you, this is who God truly is. This is what God is actually like. Remember the words of the Roman satyrian at the end of the Gospel of Mark. After he watched Jesus die, he becomes the first person in all of Mark's gospel to understand who he was. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. And how did he come to know that? By seeing him die. Because I tell you, friends, no one has ever seen God. But the only God, the one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is how he has done it. This is how Christ Jesus has made God known to you. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, this Christ Jesus, this Son of God, who makes the Father known, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, this is what God has done. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that glorious, beautiful name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, both in heaven and on earth and on under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, this is your God, that crucified man. This is how he has revealed himself to you. So do not forget, I tell you, do not forget if you doubt his nature, if you doubt the character of God, remember the way to know what God is like, the way to know who God is, is to go again and again to the cross 
to Calvary, to Golgotha, to the crucified man who died in utter pain and humiliation and shame for you. And on the third day was raised again. This is who Jesus is, and Jesus is the one who makes the unseen God known and seen and revealed to his beloved. That's what he does, and he does it by his death on the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, we thank you for your immeasurable grace, not only in his incarnation, but in his death on a cross for our salvation, for his rising again, for his ascension to your right hand, for his coming again on the last day. Father, help us to remember that when we question your nature and your character to go there to the crucifixion of your son, that we might understand who you truly are, what your love for us is truly like, the faithfulness with which you love us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.